We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to That Planet Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Jamie Bill of Tree Oak Distilling. And this was a conversation I wanted to kind of have it early on when I saw the company's website and saw a little bit about their history and background and some of the products they offered. But more specifically, you know, when I kind of wanted to speak to the company and they told me about Jamie, um, I thought the idea of kind of her background as the director of science and sustainability with the company, as well as kind of her science background, I thought that was very interesting. And I thought that was kind of a, a, a weird conversation to have on, you know, how science kind of comes into play in the wine and spirits environment. So thank you again, Jamie, for having this conversation and speaking with me on this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So I kind of wanted to start off on, you know, primarily how you got involved with uh, tree oak distilling. Um, I, I kind of saw that you primarily came from a uh, public school teaching background and kind of wanted to see on, you know, what was that like? Uh, did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? Um, and, you know, how was that conversation started? Sure. Uh, so you're right. I taught high school science. Um biology and environmental science for 11 years. Uh, then during the summer of 2017, um, so that spring semester, the school district, Dripping Springs ISD, uh, wanted to promote the idea of, of business relevance in the classroom. You know, why am I having to learn this? When am I ever going to use that? You've heard those questions. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, it's a progressive district in terms of trying to really teach the kids things that they will be able to learn um, and show them the, the beauty of learning these, these details. So um, they had a new program and they called it the externship. And so for three days over the summer, they handpicked a few of us lucky teachers to partner with a local business um, and work with that company and bring that business relevance back to the classroom. So we could share with our peers, um, we could share with our students, um, and I thought it was a great idea, so I volunteered and was lucky enough to be chosen. Um, Treaty Oak has been a, an integral part of this community ever since they moved operations from Austin into Dripping Springs, and that was 2015. Um, working with the Chamber of Commerce, working with the school district, so uh, they had already reached out and said, yes, we would love to, to have someone in the science and the sustainability realm, as those are two important pillars in our company. Um, so I spent three days um, over that summer, and I think it was the second day that I was there um, working on yeast cell counts um, and kind of working through the distillation process um, that uh, our founder and CEO, Daniel Barnes, sat me down and said, 
I really like your brain. I think you would be a good fit here. Um, mm-hmm. I was already a fangirl. Um, I loved the Waterloo number no. nine gin um, and loved the property. I would go out with my family and, you know, enjoy the 28 acres. And so having this job offer was very exciting. Um, I loved teaching. I never anticipated leaving the classroom. But mm-hmm. when this opportunity came along and I've been doing the same thing for 11 years, I thought, well, let's try. Let's see what the business world has to offer me. How, you know, what, what more can I learn? Um, so it was an opportunity that I, I was excited about. I thought about for about six months um, and then committed with Treaty Oak and finished my last um, year and graduated a, a wonderful class of kids, probably my favorite of all time. And then uh, went to the beach for a week with my family and then started up at Treaty Oak. <laughs> Definitely. And really when I kind of saw, um, you know, some of the information on this kind of new uh, kind of director of sustainability, um, you know, I saw some of the kind of key uh, kind of uh, key responsibilities behind the role. And, you know, I saw that one of them was, you know, they're kind of talking about the main priorities being water and waste. And I wanted to kind of ask, um, kind of starting off specifically with water um, I, I guess what is the main priority with water and why, you know, is water the number one most important thing that goes into that Waterloo gin as far as the ingredients? Um, you know, what's the importance of it? Good question. Um, water is the most important natural resource on planet Earth um, by far. It's also the most important ingredient for any of our spirits. Um, Just even by volume, um, water usage is very high in our our industry, in our company in particular. Um, So water quality and water conservation are way at the top of the list. Um, One of the, the beautiful pieces of being in Hayes County in Dripping Springs, Texas, is that we've got a, an underground aquifer Um, So we've got this limestone filtered water that we pull out of the ground and use for the mash for our Ghost Hill Texas bourbon, um, our our day drinker Texas bourbon. Um, So being able to utilize that resource but not overuse is um, something that we've always been cognizant of. Um, One way that we ensure that our aquifer is not depleted um, is by maintaining at least 75% of our 28 acres um, with pervious cover. So natural grasses, um, native plants that don't require excess water. It's just whatever the rain falls, that's what they need. Um, Mm -hmm. The rain that does fall hits that soil and through the natural processes of percolation and infiltration recharges that aquifer. So we've chosen not to cover over the land with pavement. Um, to not build more buildings than is absolutely necessary. We've actually only added two. Um, That's the distillery and the rickhouse for barrel aging. Mm -hmm. Um, So that coupled with um, incredibly water efficient um, machines and processes um, help us to ensure that we're not taking more than we absolutely have to and that we're Mm -hmm. putting back as much as we possibly can. Um, Rainwater collection is in the works. Um, there are some interesting laws that 
that make it difficult to be able to harvest rainwater and use that for commercial application. Um, mm -hmm. Compounding the fact that, you know, we need a lot of water and it doesn't rain all that much here. So trying to implement ways to have a backup plan, that, that rainwater is a backup plan, um, you know, um, just really underscores the point that we recognize what we're using. We're trying to use it responsibly and we're, we're making steps to be able to ensure um, that not just our company, um, but our neighbors have water moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I, I think I remember seeing like other states had those um, specific laws as far as rainwater. I was kind of wondering on, is it like the health department or are they mainly saying on that? In Texas, it's the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And um, the truth is, you know, rainwater is a fairly, it's this ironically, it's a fairly new idea. Um, <laughs> you know, in this modern society, we're so used to surface water or groundwater. And Texas relies about half on each, um, the statewide. I actually worked at the TCQ in the water department um, before I was a teacher. So I have a, a deep understanding of how that regulatory process works. And I understand why it has been lagging uh, pretty slow and catching up. Um, there's some, you know, health safety issues you have to consider. And so harvesting what is pure water and then having to add chlorine um, for human health purposes on the one side kind of makes sense, but on the other side is fundamentally the opposite of what's reasonable because you're taking a pure water and you're, you're you know, effectively poisoning it um, so that people can drink it. So um, until all that gets sorted out, um, it's in our best interest to continue operating the way we're operating um, mm -hmm. and um, having rainwater as the, as the, the backup singer in the equation. Definitely. I, I guess if, uh, I, I guess if the regulations were figured out, what's the, I guess the percentage of um, the water that can be, uh, I, I guess how much rainwater can be collected on the property? And like well, we've got um, 50, let's see. I've done this math before. Um, we've got about 25,000 square feet of catchment space available. Um, much of that we would be able to utilize and use gravity flow. Um, so the need for energy for pumps would be um, diminished. However, what you've got to consider is the catchment. So, you know, if we put in a 100,000 gallon catchment tank, um, then over several consecutive good rains, we could potentially fill it up. But if it's dry for a long period of time, which Texas is prone to, um, then you find yourself in a situation where if that's, if all your eggs are in rainwater um, and you're using the volume of water that we require for production, um, we absolutely have to have um, backup plans. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, East Texas gets a, a lot more rain than we do here in, um, in Central Texas. Furthermore, our rain events tend to be really concentrated. So we may get, you know, two, three, four inches at a time and then nothing for several months. Um, mm. So having a massive catchment um, is in our best interest, but it's also incredibly expensive. Uh, so we can't just limp along with a couple of little tanks and hope that it rains once a month. Um, we've got to be prepared for, you know, a random event of massive rain influx and then be able to store that um, until the next time it rains. So there's a lot of factors that make 
rainwater sound really great, um, but logistically difficult when um, when you're in industry. Um, Definitely. Definitely. Really, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to jump on the next component of, you know, talking about waste. Um, I saw on, I think, one of the blog posts on the website talking about the um, kind of the importance of the material lifecycle loop and wasn't uh, sure kind of what that meant. Um, if you wanted to kind of talk about, I guess, the importance of, uh, you know, closing that loop. Sure. I'm glad to, um, you know, planet earth has been around for four and a half billion years, uh, and has had these natural cycles in place. Life has been around for about 1.2 billion years. And once that step was made, um, those cycles wobbled a little bit until they accommodated and were able to replicate, um, and maintain this homeostatic level of fresh water, um, you know, hard water in terms of ice and glaciers and ice caps and snow, um, steam. Um, then you've got the whole nutrient cycle where some critter dies, decomposes, and all those nutrients are immediately reused by other life forms, um, plants, fungi, animals, bacteria, um, who just keep that cycle going. So in nature, there are no linear processes. Those are fundamentally unsustainable. Um, humans are incredibly bright, um, but we have not had 1.2 billion years worth of trial and error. So we're still, you know, toddlers. We're still learning mm-hmm. how to responsibly and respectfully use the resources that we have at our disposal. Um, because of uh, the brain and the collective, you know, gung ho attitude of humans throughout history, mm-hmm. um, there hasn't been a lot of foresight. So we didn't really ever envision that we would run out of fresh water or sully the air to the point where our plants are going to suffer um, or, you know, oversalt the soil with synthetic fertilizers to where that land is no longer usable. So in the 70s, there was a, a real push to acknowledge um, some of these these limiting factors, some of these linear processes that for us um, worked really well because we got stuff really quickly and we seemed to have an abundance of it. Um, But the red flag started coming up and people started saying, you know what, we need a systemic rehaul. We need to completely redesign the way that we interact with the resources that this earth provides. Mm -hmm. Um, So taking those linear take, make, waste processes and closing that loop, um, copying off of nature is sustainable. Uh, and if we don't adhere to those kinds of principles, um, you know, our, our days are numbered. Um, so we don't want that to happen. We want the human society to continue to go on and flourish. Um, but we have to be cognizant of how we can do that, um, pull back a little bit on the usage, and then also just redesign, rethink um the way that we interact with the resources, the, you know, the ecosystem capital, the goods and services that a healthy ecosystem provides for us that we can't replicate. Um, so for example, the, the grain that we use for our whiskey, um, once we've gone through the distillation process, what we have is distiller's grain that is devoid of ethanol. We've extracted all the ethanol. 
um, but it's still very rich in nutrients, including protein. So by feeding that spent grain to cattle and to pigs, um, we're able to keep it out of the landfills, which means we're reducing um, carbon emissions, most notably methane, um, a potent greenhouse gas that that is created when this grain goes to a landfill and anaerobically decomposes. Um, mm. Now we're using that for one more step. We're putting another set of life into that grain, turning it into animal protein, um, which can then be consumed by humans as well. So it's not a perfect system, but it's a step in the right direction for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I guess a typical um, spirits brand, are they not doing that? Are they sending it straight to the landfill just, um, just due to the cost or... It depends. Um, if you're fortunate to have farmers, uh, ranchers who will be able to come pick up that product, then um, then it fiscally makes sense as well. If you don't, and you're going to have to either pay to have it hauled to the landfill or pay to have it hauled to a farmer twice as far away, um, mm -hmm. then you may look at those numbers and say, all right, well, it's a waste product. Um, it's pretty stinky when it, when it decomposes um, and people don't want that in their distillation operation. Um, so big distilleries will probably have solutions. Smaller distilleries tend to try to find little outlets, including um, using it um, to broadcast on the soil. But if you've got it, too much of it, then what you have is just this stinky mess um, and it doesn't <laughs> decompose quickly enough. Um, so I would say that progressively more distilleries are, are finding sustainable ends um, for this, you know, perceived waste. Um, but I know that it's, it's not the least expensive way. So just mm. like with everything else, you've got to, you got to think about profit versus impact, um, you know, short game versus long game. And, um, a lot of us in the spirits industry tend to have the, the mentality of wanting to protect the source of our, resources, you know, the grain, the soil that the grain is grown in, the water that nourishes those plants. Um, so all the way from cradle to grave, we want to be as respectful as we can at each step. Um, that tends to be increasingly so um, in the spirits community. Definitely. And I guess, um, is there possibly any concern or issue with uh, if uh, Treaty Oak Distilling um, you know, if they're forecasting uh, more case sales or higher production, is there, um, I guess, a lot of local farmers that would be able to uh, take in more of that, um, the, the additional uh, decomposed product or uh, would you guys For have sure. to? Oh, okay. We would be okay, but I actually have a, a plan um, that I'd like to implement. Um, I've got to secure funding for this because like most endeavors, there's going to be an upfront investment cost, uh, but this becomes cash positive in, you know, five to seven years. Um, there are these um, anaerobic digestion units that, you know, we could build ourselves or there are companies out there who provide them ready-made. And basically what we would do is take all of that spent grain, all of the, the spent botanicals for our gin production um, as well as the kitchen scraps. Um, in this case, we would also be able to, unlike standard composting, we would be able to include fats, oils, greases, meat, bone, basically any unusable, um, you know, natural product. 
load it into this anaerobic digestion unit, um, keep it moist, allow the microbes to do their thing. And then what they generate is um, methane, which we can use to supplement our propane needs. Um, the difference between methane and propane chemically is just a couple of carbons. Um, so we would potentially be able to generate our own energy source from the waste that we generate on site, both in distillation of gin and whiskey, as well as our restaurant. So that's, that's the most impactful um, way that I can come up with to be responsible with, with what we're using. Um, just need a couple more dollars first. <laughs> Definitely. And you kind of mentioned on the, uh, the benefits and kind of adapting the distillation process to uh, be more sustainable. I was going to kind of wonder on, you know, what were um, some kind of recent um, changes you've made to the overall distillation process that, you know, you think has been um, increasing productivity and increasing overall just output? Yes. In January of 2019, we installed a continuous column still um, in our distillery. Previously, we'd been using pot stills. And so basically the way that that works is you mix the grain with water, you heat it up, um, and then you cool it down. You have to maintain temperature during fermentation. Um, then when you put it in the pot still itself, you've got to boil all that stuff to get the ethanol to move into the vapor state. Then you have to cool that ethanol vapor and so it condenses um, into your final product. And then you have to cool down the remainder of the material in the pot still. Um, so there was a lot of energy involved um, and a lot of water that was being used once. Um, with the inception of this um, continuous column distillation, this fractional distillation. Um, we're able to keep the hot hot and the cold cold. We are able to use steam for CIP or cleaning in place. So there aren't any chemicals that need to go down any drains. Um, we can reuse what's called the thin slop or the watery component of a run and put that back into the mash tun instead of wasting it. Um, or having, you know, paying to have that liquidy, yeasty stuff hauled off. You can't put that in a septic mm -hmm. system. Um, it'll, it'll kill the microbes that are supposed to be doing their job in there. Um, so we've increased production by 400%. We've increased efficiency of energy use by 80% and increased efficiency of water use by 60% with this new equipment. Um, we okay. do still have our pots so that we can use that for gin distillation, for one-off whiskeys. There's just a certain flavor that's conferred in, in pot distillation that we still want to hang on to. Um, so we still have, you know, roots and tradition, um, but with this eye on innovation um, and are really focused on maximizing um, what we can pull out of the resources that we're depending upon. Um, so it was a huge step in the right direction. Definitely. And with... Um you know, I kind of talked about, uh, you know, you kind of talked about the change from kind of the original um, use of pots. And I was kind of re recently seeing more and more in the uh, kind of news and certain changes with uh, distillation processes. And I saw one company talking about um, kind of the use of, they're kind of using various, I think, reactors and wood chips. And it was kind of, you know, and they say it was to speed up and 
uh, speed up the process of what might take, you know, months of making a barrel-aged whiskey, it can um, reduce into days. And I was kind of wondering if, you know, if you've kind of seen on that news and if you think would something, would a change like that possibly have any effect on the overall sustainability or, you know, make things use less energy or would that use more energy? Yes. Um, So a couple of ways to answer that. Um, Number one, anytime you're trying to kind of outsmart natural processes, um, A, you're probably going to fail at that in the long term. (laughs) If it's not today, it's tomorrow. Um, And B, there's going to be external inputs um, that are required, be that, you know, biomass um, in the case of the wood chips, um, the reactors, they're, they're using either fossil fuels uh, probably not using uranium for proper nuclear reactors. If they are, that's still um, harvesting. So mining that material um, and then having the, the problem associated with what do you do with this, these spent um, reactor rods. Um, so anytime we try to get too big for our britches, we learn the lesson um, eventually that, you know, the, the original way, the old school way is, is probably the best. Um, now having said that, I just pointed out that the technological advances that we're benefiting from, um, with this column still are huge. Um, the truth is it wasn't really a, um, it it wasn't a, let me phrase this properly. Um, the technology was systemic redesign. That's what makes our new system more efficient. It wasn't that someone somewhere used a bunch of natural resources, a bunch of energy to create this new system. They just said, okay, here's a problem. You're using all of this energy to heat up and then cool down. You're wasting time. You're using more energy than you need. What if we redesign this so the hot stays hot, the cold stays cold? Um, So that technology that we have, that continuous column still, is an example of um, using our brains um, applying what we know, that applied science that is technology, not relying on some other external input factor to help, you know, move the bar. Definitely. No, no, definitely. I can see uh, kind of the insight on that on definitely the trying to outsmart kind of natural processes possibly isn't best for the long run. Um, no, no, I saw kind of that topic becoming kind of controversial amongst companies. And no, I thought that was a, a really cool insight. Um, yeah, I kind of want to uh, really talk specifically, we kind of talked at the beginning about, um, you know, your change over to the the company and getting involved. And, you know, I see kind of the company um, prides itself on people coming from such various backgrounds. And I was kind of wondering, uh, you know, what the company culture has been like, um, you know, coming from, uh, your teaching background and, you know, what have you been, I guess, enjoying about it? Uh, I love the diversity of experience um, and what each person brings to the table is unique. And that enables us to work together from a bunch of different angles to tackle issues, um, problems, to, to innovate, to be collaborative and creative. Um, ultimately, that's what makes a good solid team anyway. Um, if you had all of us from the same background, um, we would have, you know, glaring overlaps 
um, mm-hmm. where we all know the same thing. And then conversely, we would be missing um, significant perspective. So by having us all mixed up um, with our background, with our areas of expertise, um, we really do make a cohesive team. Um, you know, one thing that we all have in common is we like to learn. We like to solve problems. We like to uh, innovate. Uh, we like to work with each other. We're always questioning and growing. So even though our, our backgrounds, our trainings, um, where we came from, our pensions are diverse, um, the unifying factor is absolutely um, scholarship. We're always trying to learn more. Um, you know, we text each other, send emails late night. Oh my gosh, you got to read this. Oh, Hey, I was thinking, Hey, I just saw this. Let's, let's look into that tomorrow. Let's start experimenting with that. Um, so there's no shortage of ideas uh, and creative energy. Um, and I think that it, you know, it helps to be able to pull from so many different backgrounds, so many different life experiences, um, to make the Motley crew that we are. Definitely. And, um, you know, kind of talking about, uh, you know, the enjoyment of everyone kind of learning um, in the role and kind of coming up with new adaptations and kind of uh, new strategy for the business. I saw um, kind of one of the um, really one of the topics being tackled was the introduction and kind of uh, the supply of high quality barrels from, uh, I think, Kentucky distilleries um, that send it over. And I was kind of wondering on, you know, with uh, re- really what goes into making a high quality barrel and, you know, is there, uh, was there anything from you on a kind of sustain- sustainability process on, I guess, locating a good barrel source or, um, you know, making sure that there's a material cycle loop um, with those barrels? Absolutely. And we've partnered with the best in the business. Uh, Kelvin Cooperage um, is a multi-generational family-run operation that started off in Scotland on the Kelvin River, um, moved to bourbon country. And although they do make our incredibly high quality products and all uh, our barrels, I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment, um, their primary job is to be kind of a facilitator of breathing new life into these barrels. Um, One of the laws in this country um, to make a bourbon, you have to age your whiskey, your your clear spirit in a first use American white oak barrel. And once it's been used, it cannot be reused for a bourbon. You can finish other whiskeys in it. You can finish beer or wine. Um, you You can use it for other purposes, but not for bourbon. So Kelvin saw this, you know, egregious waste of material and quickly mobilized. And now what they do is, you know, just facilitate the, the movement of each of those dumped barrels um, to give it a second, third, fourth life. The barrels, if, you know, treated properly, can last 80 years. And here in Texas, we're aging our bourbon for between two and five years. Um, it's a little bit longer in Kentucky, um, Tennessee, Virginia, classic American bourbon country. Um, and then over, you know, overseas, you can make these whiskeys. They're not bourbons, but you can make these other whiskeys and age them for decades or use these American bourbon barrels that are, you know, really resource time and money intensive, but keep using them. 
So in addition to working with them, um, which I think is a company that just has heart and soul, um, we also reuse our barrels on site. Um, we trade with, um, with local businesses. We sell them to customers who want to use them to make furniture. Um, we've got some folks that make furniture and uh, things like that for us on site. Um, so as, as often as we can, we'll reuse barrels, um, even if it's a broken down barrel and we use those chips for our smoker, for our barbecue program. Um, we are um, really conscientious about wanting to um, get as much life out of each one of those barrels as possible. Um, sometimes you just can't and an old barrel gets broken down and we don't have use for it. Um, and in that case, I keep track of how many, we call them dump barrels um, that have no second life in them for whatever reason. Um, and we donate to an organization called One Tree Planted. Um, unlike large scale, you know, like paper mill farms, um, this is an ecosystem level approach. It's a global uh, company, company organization um, that will find an ecosystem in need, um, use our dollars to pay for the volunteers and the material to reestablish health in that ecosystem. Um, from planting trees to soil quality to water quality um, to, you know, social responsibility, um, providing an opportunity for locals who may be impoverished or, you know, aren't getting fair wages um, to now be able to have a craft, um, have something to sell, um, be able to stimulate the local e economy. So from both, you know, an environmental perspective and a social perspective, um, partnering with companies like Kelvin and organizations like One Tree Planted um, helps us to achieve our sustainability goals. Um, and um, plus, Kelvin just makes amazing mm -hmm. products. Uh, the, their, their commitment to quality is analogous to ours. Um, so one cool story I'll regale you. Um, we found a company who makes furniture out of reclaimed wood. So, you know, barns or trees that have fallen naturally. Um, we thought it would be cool to make a barrel out of Texas oak. We're treaty oak, so it makes sense, right? So mm -hmm. these guys mm -hmm. found uh, three post oak trees that had been pushed over by a tornado, um, harvested those trees. Excuse me. They harvested those trees and then sent the wood to Kelvin. And out of three huge, mature post oak trees, um, the quality of wood was only up to their standards to make one and a half barrels worth of oak. Um, so not only are they, you know, committed to finding good use for these wooden barrels for the wood that they don't deem high quality enough. Um, but when they make a barrel, they make it right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, really kind of, uh, when I saw you kind of talk, touched up on, you know, sometimes you can't get the full use out of every single barrel, um, when you're kind of, uh, trying to reuse them as much as possible and see and extend the life of each barrel. I was kind of wondering on, you know, how much does the, I guess the weather out in Dripping Springs comes into play with that. Um, you know, cause I, I know, um, some of the products, will evaporate within some of these barrels. I was kind of wondering, um, you know, do they have to make a custom barrel for uh, possibly a more rapid or hotter climate? Or, you know, do you have to simply, you know, does that simply come with a business or how does that go? 
So some distillers will opt for a smaller barrel because that um, almost augments or increases the aging process. Um, we use a full-size 53-gallon barrel, char three. Um, so we're not trying to increase the aging process. Now, let me explain that the way whiskey ages is not like humans. Uh, we tell time in weeks, months, years, but whiskey um, is aged by the frequency of movement of that spirit into and out of the barrel. It's charred on the inside. Um, so all of the color from a whiskey comes from that char um, and much of the flavor. Now, every time that barrel heats up, um, then that, that juice inside expands and pushes into the staves. Um, when it cools off, then it will condense and move back out of the staves and back into itself. Um, coupled with another couple of processes like um, oxidation that occurs um, when the air is exposed to that spirit, what we're really looking at is how many times does that whiskey breathe? Now, the daily and seasonal temperature fluctuation and humidity here in central Texas is significantly different um, than in Louisville, Kentucky, or um, in Tennessee, or certainly in, you know, um, the UK, in Scotland, in Ireland, um, in Japan. So I've taken a real fine tooth comb and looked through, poured over data information um, for various locations around the, the world and compared them to ours. And what we're starting to taste and see now um, that our whiskey has matured about five years um, confirms what my hypothesis was that the whiskey in Texas, especially our part of Texas, is going to breathe more frequently than in comparative other locations. So a five-year Texas bourbon is going to taste more like an eight, 10, 12-year Kentucky bourbon. Um, it, and it's a product of the one variable we have no control over. Um, we could use different barrel sizes. We could dig down into the ground and store our barrels underground to try to mitigate some of that hot summer heat, but we don't want to fight it. We want the Texas climate to be the wild card that makes this unique spirit. We can control the mash bill, which kinds of grains go into our, our mash. Um, we can control the yeast strain. We can control how long it ages, the char of the barrel, where the barrel's made. Um, but we want the Texas climate to absolutely leave an indelible mark on our spirit. Um, that's what the taste of place is. That's the terroir of making our bourbon. Um, so... It's been super fun to be able to share our bourbon with um, folks outside of Texas and let them, you know, bourbon experts who come in and, and say, wow, you know, there really is something to this. Um, so it's, you know, it's an ongoing experiment and it's, it's a great part of my job. Definitely. So you talked about um, really just the, un, I guess, kind of the rapid changes of kind of the weather and, you know, how that's important with the business. And I kind of want to jump to, you know, the rapid changes of COVID-19 and kind of what it's, you know, been like for most businesses. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of kind of wine and spirits-based organizations, it, it seems like a lot of them, you know, had to either partially or 100% go to new alternative revenue sources, including hand sanitizer. I know some that went to like personal care products um, just for their alcohol background. So I wanted to ask, um, really, on the transition 
of treaty oak distilling? And if, you know, uh, was there any safety measures that have been in place? And then also, was there anything that had to be changed as far as, you know, where the revenue came from? Oh, for sure. Um, first and foremost, we shut down. Um, we didn't want to expose our employees and their families or any of our community members to this burgeoning virus. Um, we pivoted immediately and we were one of the very first in the state of Texas to start producing our own sanitizer um, and cranking that out, um, getting it to first responders, to nursing homes, to hospitals, to our locals. Um, in addition to that, uh, we also changed our, our on-site operations. You know, on Saturdays, we can have five, 6,000 people on our 28-acre property. We've got a restaurant on-site, several um, open-air bars and, and buildings that serve drinks. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place for the community to come and gather. It's a place for tourists to stop by and get an experience of what the Hill Country has to offer. Um, so all that stopped. Um, which meant we had to furlough all of those service members. Um, our production team switched to making sanitizer, so they were still gainfully employed, um, but we couldn't get our grain in, um, so we couldn't make whiskey. Um, then we decided we would offer um, groceries, sundries, basics, um, and then hot meals as well as take-and-bake meals to go. So that way we were able to bring back a few of those employees like, you know, offsite events coordinators um, who didn't have any events to work. Uh, we could bring them back um, and also serve a community need. Um, in addition to donating a bunch of food to the, the local children um, who weren't in school, you know, they depend on school for their lunch, um, sometimes their lunch and their breakfast. Um, so two out of the three meals a day are coming from school and they weren't in it. Um, so we worked with um, a great lady in our community as well as our food distributor um, to figure out a way to provide for them, plus bring a little bit of money back into keeping our business operating. Um, all the while, we pivot to you know virtual platforms. We had a, a show called Corin Stream, and it was an eight-week program where every Saturday, just like back in the old days, you would tune in at a specific time and it was kind of like a variety show. We had um, some of the most amazing legendary Texas musicians um, on our show. Um, we showed how to make a cocktail at home. Um, we pivoted to online sales and, um, you know, entertained conversations with several different um, platforms and finally established a good relationship with an e-commerce platform that allowed us to ship our product. Um, I know a lot of people were drinking more than normal um, during the pandemic, but um, mm. the liquor stores were really kind of pushing the big brands up to the front. And so a lot of the, the craft distilleries, the smaller guys, um, weren't actually seeing those same bumps in sales and profit. Um, so we had to get very creative in ways to <clears throat> stay relevant with our current customers and reach new customers while being, you know, locked away. Um, I participated in a bunch of virtual tastings um, where we would ship the product or they could come pick the product up. Um, but then we would do this over Zoom or whatever platform. Um, and so we, you know, we scrambled. Um, we adapted because we don't die. 
um, we we hustle um, and we're still around um, paying our bills because of the concerted effort um, of all of the employees um, and and our community and our customers um, you know across the nation. So it was tough. It was weird. Um, but we're, we're getting back. We still absolutely have some COVID safety protocols in place on property. Um, but with 28 acres, we have enough space to we, where we can provide the opportunity for guests to come out and socially distance. Um, so it's feeling a lot better this time <laughs> in 2021 than this time in 2020. I'll tell you that. Definitely for sure. I, I guess to wrap this up, I wanted to just kind of ask on, you know, you talked about the 28 acres and, you know, having people back finally uh, to socially distance in some of these events. Uh, kind of just wanted to ask if there's any, I guess, other long-term projects with science and sustainability um, that, you know, you're excited for for the rest of this year? Um, well, on the science side, um, our experimental whiskeys and single barrel program um, is really taking off both nationally as well as on site. Um, we rolled out a program in September where consumers can come out and taste through single barrel. Um, they get five different spirit selections and then they can actually leave with their own bottle. Um, and that's been fun from a consumer education standpoint, uh, because I do get to talk a lot about in-depth science associated with with whiskey making, which is just fun. Um, and those kind of experiential um, opportunities, people are really craving that. They want to be able to learn and have their hands in and, you know, wax dip their own bottle. Um, so that's been fun. As far as sustainability is concerned, you know, I'm always trying to keep an eye on every part of our, our operation um, and make sure that we're doing things as smoothly as possible. Um, so trying to move forward some of those um, lingering sustainability initiatives like we talked about rainwater and anaerobic digestion, breathing life back into our compost. Now that we're running uh, the restaurant regularly, um, the garden is in full bloom. Um, that's an organic garden that we built ourselves. Um, so, um, I mean, yeah, always and always I'll be looking for um, solutions Definitely. No, I, I'm definitely excited to kind of see, you know, where this goes with uh, science and sustainability, um, with kind of the rainwater, with uh, closing that, you know, loop with kind of different waste products like the, um, you know, decomposing ethanol that need, that can go to kind of other local farms. But no, I'm definitely excited to kind of see, you know, where Treaty Oak Distilling goes with um, becoming more sustainable and, you know, increasing its distilling process. But yeah, I wanted to thank you again, Jamie, for, you know, jumping on this episode with me and having this conversation and, you know, explaining kind of how science and sustainability comes into play into kind of the spirits environment. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.